This is the Apocalypse Theater Podcast with Benjamin Allen. Episode 22 Jonathan Tabith has waited his turn patiently. Last time we heard from him, he wasn't left in the best condition. If you haven't already, go listen to Episode 8, Antlion, and Episode 11, Stranded, to get caught up before starting this episode. It wasn't until I got halfway through this podcast reading before I realized that this is an extremely graphic and violent episode, mostly violent combat depicted in the story. Just a heads up that this one might not be appropriate for sensitive listeners or listeners under 13 years of age. This is the third edition of the Fall of the Enigma series. The Prodigy Effect Jocelyn Sizemore took a few seconds to light another cigarette as she sat with her legs on the couch at an uncomfortable angle. She'd listened to Jonathan Tabith tell his story, occasionally asking him to clarify parts that didn't make sense. He remained handcuffed in his hospital bed as their freighter returned to Earth. Jonathan would be tried and possibly sentenced to death for the destruction of the Pluto station. He was the sole survivor of the starship Enigma, a ship he himself had created. She pulled on her cigarette and breathed out a cloud of smoke. So you crashed the starship Enigma, got captured and thrown in a filthy undercity prison by the nearby city guards, survived both execution and a shipwreck, and then you were stabbed repeatedly while searching a downed Hawk spacecraft. You obviously lived through the event, so what happened with the woman Aya and her brother Balor in the house by the sea? I thought I died, but my wounds closed quickly, Jonathan answered. I just remember... Balor. 1. Get up! Get up, damn you! Someone pushed Jonathan, rousing him. He felt colder than he should. The knife was gone from his chest and someone pressed a dry cloth to the wound to stop his bleeding. His eyes focused and he saw Balor standing over him in the dim moonlight. Stars filled the sky beyond the line of trees nearby. I said get up! Balor planted a boot in Jonathan's rib the opposite side to where he should have been mortally wounded. I don't think I can, Jonathan croaked. He placed a shaky hand on the cloth. I didn't ask, Balor yelled and picked Jonathan up by his arms. It hurt, but nowhere near as much as getting stabbed repeatedly. Standing him upright on his two feet, Balor took a step back. I've never seen anyone survive an initiation kill. Rather than ask how, I'll assume you're not as weak as I thought. I guess that's a compliment, Jonathan groaned. How can one who's capable of mastering the skies be so incapable when it comes to basic survival? Balor started back to the house. Jonathan perused the ruts in the ground, following them to the forest path where the thieves had taken the vessel. It was his direct link to the Enigma network. Jonathan jogged to catch up with Balor on the road. I need to get that ship back, and I need to do it soon. Tough. You got robbed, so consider yourself lucky you're still alive. You'll never see that ship again. Thieves in this forest don't give back just because you asked nicely. If they ever see your face, they won't just kill you. They'll string you up and cut out your insides. Something I'll bet even you can't recover from. No, but you're a soldier. Former soldier, Balor corrected. And I don't teach idiots who have a strong desire to get killed. Jonathan pressed the wound on his chest. It still hurt. Teach me, for Aya. Balor made a noise with his mouth. Aya is the most non-violent person you'll ever meet. Exactly and you can't take care of her on your own in your condition. I heard the men talking about a man named Redbetter. Lanny, Redbetter, ring a bell? Teach me how to fight, and I will bring this man kicking and screaming to your feet. 
revenge for what was done to your sister. We don't have any weapons, Balor said. Send me to town and I'll buy some. They thought I was nothing more than a farmhand. I can do this if you'd be willing to show me how to survive. Balor cocked a brow and glanced at him with one hand on the door handle. It's not just survival. It's using your wits and intuition. Where Aya and I were raised, you didn't learn how to be a soldier. They found the ones who were already soldiers because you had to be born that way. If you're not a warrior at heart, no amount of conditioning can make you one. Jonathan stopped before the front stoop of the house. You have no idea what I've done for my kind, and what I could do for you and your sister. Balor didn't say anything. He pushed into the house and disappeared into the shadows. Jonathan closed and barred the door and then sat on Aya's chair in the living room. Since Joel was still sick in the guest bed and Aya had already gone to sleep, Jonathan had no place to sleep but here. He woke periodically as the sun made its way through the morning cycle. He heard Aya wake and start making morning tea, but remained in the chair as his body forced him to rest. She finished the tea as Joel entered the living room. The color appeared to have returned to his face. Here, Aya raised a cup of tea for Joel. Join me? He nodded and followed her out to the front door. Jonathan drifted back to sleep. When he finally woke, he found the windows in the front room covered with woolen blankets. The room looked dark even though some of the sunlight peeked through the window. Jonathan looked over and saw Balor sitting in the chair opposite to him. Joel and Aya were just coming back from being outside. I'll train you, but it won't be easy, Balor said. I'm ready when you are. Jonathan sat up and rested his elbows on his knees. We'll need wooden and steel weapons, said Balor as he made his way for the hall. Aya will take you to Shirasa this afternoon. I should have her show you how to hunt. If I have to teach you, then you'd better be catching my food each day. I'll clear out the basement while you're gone. But growing our food is so much healthier, Aya complained. In one swift motion, Balor turned and punched through a piece of the wooden frame around the doorway. I didn't ask, he glared at Aya. How can he move so quickly? Jonathan asked Aya after Balor had slammed the door to his room. Sukomia, she sighed. It makes his temper shorter than usual. His strength and agility are unnaturally high, but he has to eat raw meat, which is killing him. I keep trying to get him on a vegetable and cooked meat diet, but he gets so angry when he doesn't get what he wants. If Sukomia is what I think it is, then it's not the meat he craves, it's the blood, said Jonathan. Maybe, but I've seen men beat Sukomia without it, Aya said. Something tells me Balor had a relatively bad temper before he had Sukomia. Jonathan glanced at Joel. Family drama, Joel said in English. Yeah. Jonathan crossed his arms and sat in a chair at the table. Aya emerged from her bedroom wearing a leather tunic and black pants with a bow over her front. She turned to Balor's room. This other guy is going to need some of your clothes if you expect me to slip him into the city as well. There was a brief verbal quarrel between the two before Balor threw a pile of clothing through the doorway. They hit the wall behind Aya and slid to the floor. She brought them to Joel. He changed, and the three left Balor and the cabin to silence. The sky was another clear blue, but colder than it had been the day before. The leaves that were still on the trees had begun to turn yellow and orange. They followed a path through the tall pine and oak trees as the sun shone majestically through the canopy of crisp pines above. Balor used to have more patience. He was a really good teacher at times. He just loses it all so easily nowadays, Aya said. Once he runs out of excuses to avoid teaching, he'll enjoy doing it again, Jonathan said. You okay, Joel? he asked in English. Yeah, I just can't believe those guys jacked our ship, he replied. 
don't worry, they've never seen our technology. Even if they were presented with the display screen, they wouldn't even know where to begin. It'd be like one of us trying to figure out the menu on the hollow screen if it were in a language we didn't understand. I hope you're right. Just discussing the ship, Jonathan said to Aya in the Alondron language. Do you really think you'll be able to get it back? Aya asked. I have no doubt that we will. Jonathan nodded, neglecting to mention that his real reason for doing all of this was that he had a lead on her assailant. He got the feeling she wouldn't like hearing Redbetter's name. He wasn't worried about the ship. Even if the Alondrons destroyed the thing, there were dozens more on the Enigma. 2. Getting back to the Enigma should have been Jonathan's ultimate goal. With the survivors returning and the construction of Enigma Station underway, his input on the future survival of their crew would be crucial. The idea that he was stuck trying to run some tedious errand for a small peasant family of Alondrons should have made him sick, but it didn't. The Enigma was his child, an extension of himself. However, he had spent his entire life trying to master long-distance space travel, surrounding himself with like-minded colleagues in the great astrophysics theories and mechanics. It wasn't that he had grown bored of it all, but he was on a habitable planet that was not Earth interacting with terrestrials of that planet. They had made it, and now they needed to embrace everything this world had to offer. Jonathan, Joel, and Aya continued down the dusty, overgrown trail until they emerged from the wood to a great plain. The clouds etched their way across the blue sky as the sun gleamed from almost directly above. Herds of otherworldly wild animals no different than their version of caribou or cows trampled across the green plainland. I love Ayer, Aya sighed. What's Ayer? asked Jonathan. The continent. A large one, but there are bigger continents. It means anger, Joel said. The continent? Jonathan asked in English, thinking. You're right, it does mean anger in our Latin language. Why Latin? Joel asked. Why not Latin? Because it doesn't make sense. Why would they speak in a language that is so like English? Why don't they speak in clicks and whistles or some otherworldly language? You'll notice that it's not precisely Latin, just like English is not precisely Latin. It's changed a lot. Yeah, but it's still the Alondron language's root language, just like ours, said Joel. Doesn't that seem a little strange to you? Yeah, but in that regard, so does the fact that any of us exist, the Alondrons included. No, you're a smart man, Jonathan. You don't get to duck the question with some philosophical bullshit. What are the odds that these people would speak nearly the very same language that we do? Joel asked. Jonathan thought about this seriously. Latin. I'm sure there were other languages on Earth before Latin, but since that's the bridge of similarity between these worlds, I wonder if there's any truth to the myths that these people believe. Let's assume that men had the capacity to create entire worlds as it says in the Nashiridon, the Alondron texts that are on par to our King James Bible or our Quran texts of origin. Joel nodded. Perhaps, and this is simply a hypothesis, but perhaps Earth was created as an exile for our kind. Do you remember the shift in the agricultural revolution 15,000 years ago? Jonathan asked. I guess, sure, said Joel. What if all we know about our species originated on Alondronon, and we, gods among men on Alondronon, were exiled to Earth 15,000 years ago, bringing with us the early forms of the Latin language? We conquered the planet with our agriculturally advanced methods, beating down and eliminating the native tribal peoples of Earth, forcing them to conform to our way of living. The taking of the fruit in Eden, Cain and Abel, brothers destroying one another as part of a huge cultural shift that inevitably came close to destroying Earth in our time. Joel took a moment to mull this over. 
It's a viable possibility. Just a hypothesis, like I said. It would make sense of a lot of things and explain why we share the common Latin roots, Jonathan said. Except that early Latin on Earth only began 4,000 years ago at the earliest, Joel pointed out. You asked me to give a reason why the Alondron root language is Latin, so I gave you the closest thing I could come up with based on what I've figured out about this planet and its inhabitants. Okay, I'll give you that. How about I ask Aya? Jonathan proposed. Joel shrugged. They followed the trader's path that sliced through the plains as far as the eye could see. Aya had noticed that the two were engaged in conversation, but had politely said nothing. Jonathan relayed the points of their discussion and gave a brief explanation of the Bible and its fascinating metaphorical insinuations about early humanity. She listened, asking questions when clarification was needed. By the time they were all on the same page, they had re-entered another forest. It's possible, Aya said. I'm not sure how long ago the split occurred. You'd have to consult an Asheridon. It sounds possible, everything you said, but like your friend observed, it could never be anything more than an idea. Jonathan nodded. They hiked in silence, watching the trees as the wind rustled the yellowing leaves. The planet was so much like the early forms of Earth, even its seasonal cycles. The cool in the air, the change in foliage, the earthy smell of untarnished nature, he had tasted it on his father's farm. But here, the atmosphere was so rich and untamed by man that his senses were flooded with activity. If one theoretically wanted to see this Nishiridon, said Joel, what would they have to do? I mentioned something about gladiators being able to see it after or before a major match, Jonathan said, remembering the Virago and how Brudo had stabbed him and left him for dead. How odd it had been that Jonathan had survived. Anyway, we might be able to compete, one of us, Joel wondered. Don't think that's something you or I would be as good at as you might think, to murder every day, blindly, forcefully. Think I'd rather speculate and stay safe, Jonathan said, unsure if that's how he really felt. The last time he walked on Earth, in Boulder, Colorado, for a rare part he would need for the Enigma, he had felt his age as he got out of the car and made his way to Henry Pham's garage, a Vietnamese engineer that specialized in manufacturing schematics for reactors. He needed a certain size and custom shape to burn the distilled pedateptum. Pham promised that he could make anything Jonathan wanted, but he would have to come directly to his shop for it since Pham's only form of connectivity to the outside world was an old touch-tone phone. Getting older is a bizarre feeling. At 35, you don't feel that extra wind you had when you were 25, and your larger muscles have grown tired of carrying your weight around. He had tried to ignore the wrinkles in his face, the slackening of his skin, the drab, gray-colored pallor that marked the sign of too much work, the bruise-colored bags beneath his eyes. He saw it in the mirror, but seeing isn't acknowledging. He told himself as he made his way up to the garage door while his muscles ached that it was the elevation, that his body was trying to compensate for the lack of oxygen. Jonathan was easily one of the smartest human beings on earth, so he knew that wasn't the only reason he was winded. On Alondronon, he felt as able and capable as he had when he was 18. He had been in his third year of college when he was 18, so he hadn't been in the best of shape, few physicists were, but this wasn't just a good day for Jonathan. Every single moment was wasted on the amount of energy he felt at any given time. It started in his chest and worked its way to his legs, which were strong enough to carry him for weeks before he might tire. His mind was clear, and he was able to see things in ways he hadn't on Earth. Reality seemed malleable, like he could manipulate the speed at which he and the rest of the world moved. They hadn't even been on a laundronon for an entire week. 3. 
They left the wood and paused on a vista overlooking a large field before a massive curved stone wall. Houses and turrets peeked over the wall that presumably contained Shirasa. In the middle they saw a multi-layered castle climbing to the sky. It looked more like a medieval earthen city, unlike the strange tower structure Jonathan had encountered shortly after his arrival. He could never forget the horrors he had witnessed in Chryseis. This is just the top. Shirasa is subterraneous. That Colosseum over there? Aya pointed at a taller wall within the city. That's small compared to the great arena at the bottom floor. That's just the training arena where they take the sludge to get sorted. Sludge? Jonathan asked as the three descended the hill toward the city. There are so few worthy adversaries that survive the grunge matches. The sludge is just the sheer inflow of convicts that get disposed of in the preliminary matches of the competitions. Rain or shine, there's always some competition going on, and everybody likes to come out and watch. You don't find anything wrong with that? Jonathan asked, thinking of their Roman gladiators back home. It's hard to judge when the history of humanity on Earth was plagued with disgusting and brutal behavior until only 700 or so years earlier, and even then it took a long time for violence to run its course through their species. It doesn't matter what I think, Aya said. Jonathan wanted to argue, but knew it was futile. Aya had spent her life avoiding conflict, lest she wind up as sludge to be executed for entertainment like cattle to be slaughtered for food. They threw Jonathan into the virago for being a mere vagrant. Revolutions didn't happen on Alondranon, not yet. People would have to realize their own civil unrest before they could do that. However, if the Alondrons were anything like humans, then it was only a matter of time. Aya noticed him observing the crowd at the north and south entrances to the city, but only a few people meandered down the road in front of them toward the tall walls of Shirasa. The trade highway from Narsus to Cathara runs straight through Shirasa. Usually trappers and hunters are the ones who live in the woods. You're actually not supposed to live in the woods, but we live in thief territory. The officials steer clear of our cabin. Huge red and gold banners draped from the walls, displaying Shirasa's city symbol. A circle encompassing a smaller circle with a star on the inner left. The front doors were open and two guards stood on either side of the gateway. They looked like toy soldiers from a distance. The whole place looked like what Jonathan would have classified as a large medieval realm in the golden sunlight. The guards grew more menacing as the three drew closer. Each guard wore a full set of chainmail armor decorated with the city colors, and both carried spears. They were asking everyone going through who they were and their business in Shirasa. Most of the people ahead of them were there for the competitions or were gathering supplies for a predicted storm. The three stood in line alongside an older gentleman sitting atop a cart that was draped with a large white skin. He wore a big brown coat over his shoulders and had scraggly, unkempt facial hair. An odd, cheese-like odor radiated from the goods beneath the fur behind him. A trio of men stood in front of the cart owner. One was older, the other middle-aged, and the third was a young man a little younger than Joel. They all had bright red hair and freckles. Aya glanced at the back of the cart and then at Jonathan before smiling. Hmm, when to go? The driver noticed her. He reached under the skin, grabbed a steak, and tossed it to Aya. She caught it. Have you ever had Wendigo, Jonathan? She asked. Can't say that I have, Jonathan said. He eyed the steak in her hand, remembering that he hadn't eaten anything heavy in several days. Joel took the steak from her and bit into it. He immediately spat the hunk out. This tastes horrible. The cart rider's shoulders bobbed up and down as he released a husky laugh. Aya took the steak from Joel and wrapped it in a slip of cloth she had in her hip bag. Cooking might help. Wendigo won't turn for masses, so you can store it however works until you sell it. 
One Wendigo yields about a hundred stakes. They're huge mountain dwellers that won't hesitate to rip you apart. What kind of person's never seen a Wendigo? The youngest of the red-headed boys asked Aya with a sneer on his face. Dillard, mind your own business, the middle brother said. I'm just curious, Dillard protested. I'm allowed to ask a question, aren't I? I'm guessing telling them you're from another world wouldn't be too smart, Aya whispered to Jonathan. Maybe he's slow, doesn't matter, the other brother replied. Both of you, not another word until we get into the city, the eldest of the three said. Last thing we need is Dillard to go shooting off his mouth again. Remember, if you get us kicked out, your trips to the games are over. The guards let the three boys through, searched through the hunter's cart to confirm it was full of wendigo meat, and then waved him through. They stopped Jonathan, Joel, and Aya. Getting ready for the coming storm, but no cart or horse? Which farm are you guys from? The left guard asked. He looked nearly identical to the right while they were in uniform. The Relgos to the south, answered Aya. We traveled the road a little too far north and decided it'd be best to come in through the east entrance. They don't usually give us trouble at the south entrance. The Relgos, you say, said the right guard. Whereabouts is the farmstead? Off which road? I'm confused. It's through the east forest, beyond Gohorn River. I can show you on a map if you like. My family has been there for generations. I think I remember there being a little place off the beaten path over there, the left guard said. No cart or horse, what is your business here? Today's a slow day for the games. This weekend is the one everyone's looking forward to. We have some shopping to do. Jonathan answered, which awarded him a dangerous look from Aya. Both the guards stared at Jonathan. It was his speech. He was still learning and not as proficient with his wording as he might have thought earlier. They definitely knew something was wrong with his dialect. What was that? The right guard squinted at him and took a step forward. He means that we'd like to purchase some equipment from the market. You've got some shopping to do, he emphasized, ignoring Aya. I've never heard that one before. He sometimes likes to make up phrases, Aya smiled sheepishly. Go on through, the left waved at them. Jeez, Yabez, you don't have to be an asshole, the guard said behind them. They passed the front gates and descended a vast set of steps to a path that meandered through a canal that took up the whole block. Ahead, they could see the motion of a bustling marketplace beyond a tall, ornate archway. Jonathan took hold of Aya's arm and stopped her before they could enter the marketplace. What do I need to do in order to avoid trouble next time? Keep your mouth closed. Until you understand what you're saying, more importantly, how you're saying it, you'll always get in trouble. I see. I'm not so sure myself of what you're saying sometimes, said Aya. There are bizarre phrasings and collections of terms in your speech. It's vibrant, but... Too much for the average person. Keep it simple. We like it when things seem normal. I can understand that, Jonathan said. Lead the way. Aya led them through the archway where they entered the bazaar. The closest thing Jonathan could associate the place with was a large outdoor flea market. The smell of livestock and roasting meat dominated the air. People were everywhere. The men wore tunics or smocks and the women wore adoras and dresses. Many people wore leather doublets or were shrouded in cloaks. Almost everyone had a certain hardness to their face that can only come from living well beneath their means. Steam hissed from the many food carts and stations throughout the massive quarter. A wooden porch walk rounded the storefront from the outer buildings of the square. Men with beards puffed on hand-rolled cigars as they leaned on the archways of the awning or sat on benches and stared out at the flowing traffic. The smell of food turned Jonathan's stomach ravenous. How much money do you have? he asked Aya. 
Enough for a snack and the supplies we need, but no more, she said, watching Jonathan and Joel. Whatever you spend on us will pay back in double, Jonathan promised. Don't make promises you can't keep, Jonathan, she said. If only you could have seen the man that I was on earth. Every man, woman, and child knew my name. Aya smiled at him. And yet here, no one knows your name. I doubt anyone would even care. We'll see, Jonathan said. Joel flicked his eyes between them. What's happening? Jonathan paraphrased the last few minutes for him as Aya led them to a store. Maybe their language was similar, but the words on the sign above the shop were incomprehensible to Jonathan. Whatever was cooking inside smelled like barbecue. They walked up to the bar where a muscular cook stood wiping his hands with a gray washcloth. Aya ordered for them, and ten minutes later, they were eating roasted potato, a hunk of warm bread, and two slices of cooked veal chops. It was gone within minutes for Joel and Jonathan. Aya took her time. Once she finished, she led them to a store down the block with weapons lining the interior walls. They could hear the pangs and grinding of a blacksmith's setup from the back room. Behind the counter stood a man with long brown hair wearing a fine red tunic over his long-sleeved shirt. The long sword at his hip and the badge on his collar expressed some form of a military or combat history. Name's Rack. What can I do for you? Rack looked between Aya, Joel, and Jonathan. We need four practice swords and two long swords, Aya said. That's, Rack calculated, five Jerian shards. He fished several practice swords from under the counter while Aya opened her hip bag and withdrew the pouch she had drawn at the place where they ate. She picked out five glittering purplish-green diamonds from the pouch and dropped them on the counter. Jerians are the big ones, Aya whispered and drew another Jerian shard from the pouch to show Jonathan. Logans are the middle-sized shards, and Petries are the smallest. She picked the next two sizes from the bag. Jonathan nodded. Aya closed the bag and returned to Rack as he placed two long sword cases on the counter next to the bag of four practice swords. Rack took the five shards and smiled at Aya. Pleasure doing business. Aya took the bag. Jonathan and Joel each took a long sword. They left the shop and started through the marketplace toward the entrance where they came in. Don't you think it's a little easy for people to acquire the weaponry needed to rape, murder, and steal? Jonathan asked. That guy in there didn't even ask how old we were. Aya gave Jonathan a cynical look, narrowing her blue-green eyes on him. I suppose you think the answer would be to outlaw and ban all weaponry from the city? She laughed at the very idea. We'd be plundered and murdered in the streets within a week. We once thought everyone needed to be armed until we no longer gave one another an excuse to murder or harm. We had to change the way we think about things in order to get to that place. You've got your work cut out for you if you think that will work here, Aya said as they passed through the archway and started down the channel leading through the canal. You'd be surprised what we're capable of accomplishing. Maybe someday I'll show you, Jonathan said. They made their way back through the market. A strange sensation passed over Jonathan. He looked around and caught the gaze of none other than one Langston, one of the officers who'd been stationed aboard the Enigma. He sat in cross-legged meditation on the plank of the boardwalk. Scruffy red facial hair filled his chin and mustache beneath his hazel eyes. He wore faded white cloth pants that might have been part of his uniform, and no shirt. Jonathan veered away from Joel and Aya. They noticed and followed. One, Jonathan stopped before the wooden step. Jonathan Tabith, he beamed up at him. Fancy seeing you here. Are there others? How did you get here? Do you still have access to a Falconer freighter? The question spilled out of him. Juan looked at him curiously. I came here with Chance Trelion. He and a few others have been trying to coordinate a revival effort, but I wanted to stay here for now. How long ago was this? When did they leave? 
Jonathan asked. About a day and a half ago, Juan recalled, they were headed for Enigma Station in a Falcon, and then Chance said they were going to another settlement. I wouldn't go after them. They don't have much in the way of plans. It doesn't matter. I need a toolkit. Any toolkit. There's one on every ship, but almost everybody's taken them. I'm afraid you're probably out of luck. You might check the Enigma if you can catch a ride to the other continent. Shartan, the native Alondrons call it, Juan said. We need to get back, Aya said, checking the sun. Before you leave, Jonathan, said Juan, you should meditate. You'll find that it's a little different here. Remember what you learned on Earth. Jonathan nodded, considering the proposal. I will. Have a good day, Mr. Langston. May you remain in good health. You as well. The three parted from Juan and made their way for the west entrance to the city. The guards stopped them again on their way out. Whoa, is that what you were talking about when you said equipment? We were thinking you were talking about a rake or a hoe, maybe some shears. Swords? What are you guys up to? Making sure we can come back next week to buy more equipment, Aya said. She seemed frustrated, probably about being harassed about her business by two imbeciles who had no reason to be bothering her or anyone else. They were just bored. Fair enough, said Yabez, the gate guard. Be on your way. The two scoffed behind their backs as they started down the path to the forest in the distance. 4. By the time the three had made their way back to Aya's hut, the cool of the night had swept across the countryside and the sun had vacated the lavender sky. Aya seemed relieved to be home. Everything remained intact and Baylor sat on the chair with his fingers curled over the ends of the armrests. Jonathan and Joel collapsed in the wooden chairs around the table. Aya dropped the longswords on the floor in front of Balor. Hope that's what you needed. Cost everything we own. I brought you a Wendigo steak. Take the weak one with you, Balor growled. Jonathan was glad Joel had no idea what he was saying. Have him do the chores from now on. Jonathan, get ready to spar. But, he said, realizing how tired he felt from the trip, my prime is at night, which means the only time I can train you is at night, Balor said. Jonathan couldn't think of a valid argument, so he got to his feet. Follow me. He led Jonathan through the house to a trap door on the floor of his bedroom. Balor held the doors open and motioned for Jonathan to enter. Dropping down the steps, Jonathan descended to a room that was larger than most of the house above. The only torch beside the desk at the back of the room flickered, causing the shadows of the room to dance. Balor took the torch and lit the torches at each of the four corners of the room, bringing up the light level. He had obviously cleaned up in a hurry as a lot of the junk had been shoved to the back. He threw a practice sword to Jonathan's feet and faced him. He looked like the tallest hobo Jonathan had ever seen in the firelight with his long black beard and wild black hair. Jonathan picked up the wooden sword. There are a few things you need to know before you engage in combat, said Balor. The first is breathing. I have been in close combat and nearly lost consciousness. When the heat grips you, it's hard to perform the most basic action that we must use. Jonathan nodded. There are several forms of attack and frames of mind to take upon yourself. You must be able to switch these styles and philosophies for each situation. A man of honor defends what is his. He does not venture out of the familiar to seek battles unless instructed otherwise. The same is true in your stance. Protect your own, be it your house, yourself, or your family. If someone or something wishes to challenge what is yours, let them come. Offenses to reclaim what is rightfully yours. To accomplish set tasks is merely the arm of a greater energy. If that requires leaving your peace, then you must take offense into your hands. 
to fluidly switch between these forms is a warrior's life from birth to death. You must always be vigilant, always be ready to defend or attack when it becomes necessary. Right, Jonathan said. Balor raised his practice sword in his right hand and positioned it scorpion-like over his shoulder next to his head. He balled his left fist and tucked his arm to his chest. His knees were bent, the left forward in Jonathan's direction beneath his invisible shield. Devier, main hand remains at the ready for retaliation, but my shield is my main focus. Don't discount the shield, though. It's just as much a weapon in defense as the sword is to offense. Should we have shields? Jonathan asked, mirroring Balor's stance. Later. For now, use your hand to push me back when I get close. I'm going to go on offense. I want you to keep me from hitting you. Balor changed motions. He put his right knee forward, kept his shield hand to his chest, and raised the wooden sword ahead as if in challenge. Impetus. When I engage you, you'll need to retaliate. Much of combat is inertia, creating energy and putting it into motion. You must relieve that motion. When done correctly, two sparring warriors move in a perpetual circle between the exchange of offense and defense. Let's begin. Balor moved forward and arched his blade downward. Akudo! He shouted as Jonathan raised his sword to defend. The wooden blades crossed, cracking together and jarring Jonathan's whole hand and arm from the impact. Isio! Balor called as he shoved Jonathan with his shield arm. Jonathan took the initial force, but then Balor threw his arm outward, sending Jonathan off his feet to the floor. Move or push me back, Balor instructed patiently. Jonathan grabbed his practice sword and got back to his feet. He returned to defense as Balor went to attack. Before Balor could get to him, Jonathan threw his knee forward. Balor swung. Jonathan moved in and hooked his shield arm under Balor's sternum. The momentum hit him, but Jonathan grappled Balor's shoulder and heaved him off his feet to the side. It was a form of Tai Chi he had learned on Earth. Balor got up. An effective maneuver that you should use in true combat, but not during sparring. I only threw you to teach a lesson that you have to accommodate for my moving mass. We're not brawling. That part comes later. Defend. Attack when you see an opening in my offense. They returned to their stances. Balor moved forward and struck from above but did so slower than he would have in actual combat. Jonathan raised his blade at the side angle and caught the attack. Balor reflexively lashed from the side in a smooth motion, Jonathan blocking with ease. In doing this, the two moved across the floor. It looked similar to the choreographed fighting he saw in movies. Balor blitzed in a series of quick strikes that Jonathan barely deflected, and then finished with a thrust. Jonathan somehow blocked the attack and jabbed the wooden sword into Balor's chest. Good, Balor said, straightening up. Now to teach you how to disarm. The two sparred until sunrise, at which point Jonathan collapsed in a chair upstairs and didn't get up until Aya entered the room to start a fire for tea. How'd it go? she asked. How does it look? Jonathan held up his right hand. It had been marked with red bruises where Balor slapped him with the wooden practice sword. Don't let him win. He's just like his trainer who would beat his students within a sliver of their lives. You have to show him that in order to teach you, it's going to cost him as much as you are paying. Balor wants a challenge as much as you want to be taught. Give it to him. He's so fast. His speed is ungodly. Only from years of training. You'll catch up to him eventually, Aya said. Joel entered the room and sat on the chair adjacent to Jonathan as the morning sunlight gleamed through the windows. Morning, guys, he spoke in a laundron. I'm putting on some tea for you, Aya said. 
We've got a lot of work to do in the yard once the sun warms up the place. May I have some tea as well? Jonathan asked. Unfortunately, if Balor is training you, you aren't allowed to have tea or any other energy-inducing formula. You're to eat rice morning, afternoon, and night. Drink only water throughout the day. You'll have a little meat with your food, but only once you've started turning fat into muscle. That won't take long, Jonathan sighed. Other than the little he'd eaten the day before, he hadn't eaten anything in a long while. If Balor teaches you the same way he was trained, said Aya, then you're in for a lot of surprises, my friend. You should use Joel's room now that he's awake. You're going to need all the rest you can get. 5. Jonathan woke that evening to the sound of thunder. His rest had been full of strange dreams of traveling to places that he had never been. He used to dream that way on Earth, but stress over the recent years had made his sleep light for the possible event that he needed to wake up quickly. When he emerged from the room, Joel and I were sitting across from one another with cups of tea in hand. Joel looked like he had just taken a fresh bath, and there was a pile of muddy clothes sitting next to a hoe next to the door. Beller emerged from the darkness of the hall behind Jonathan and gently pushed him aside so he could get through. It's been raining all day, said Joel. Got worse about an hour ago. Balor slipped on his boots and threw on a thick wool jacket. He turned to Jonathan and pointed at his getup. Lose the shirt. Stay barefoot. You want me just in my pants? Jonathan asked. There's no need for you to soil those clothes in the rain. Have you no consideration for my sister's handiwork? It's not that. I just thought we were going to spar in the basement. It is raining outside. Balor smirked at Jonathan. Yes, it is raining. Balor pulled the front door back to reveal the harsh roar of the falling rain over the misty grove. A scar of red from the sunset cut through the clouds on the western horizon over the treetops. Move. Good luck, Joel said to Jonathan. Stepping out into the freezing wet, Jonathan quickly gripped his bare arms to guard against the cold. They crossed the grove and stopped near the wall of trees. Balor slapped him on the chest with the practice sword. Hands at your sides. Back straight. He slapped him in the base of the back. Roll forward. Chin and shoulders square and level. Feet together. Knees unlocked. We call it a tension, Jonathan said, though the rain as it soaked him. Yes, this is called ahi. Stay here until I come and retrieve you. And just like that, Balor was gone. Jonathan blinked, staring straight ahead at the line of trees that was growing darker each moment. The coldness of the rain sank into his core. He had thought they would be sparring, so the idea of being nearly naked in the rain didn't bother him, but standing still meant his body wasn't generating energy through consistent motion. He began to shiver as the sun was swallowed up by the horizon and the cloud cover as if torn apart by wild dogs. After a seemingly long period of time, the cold became a blanket of harsh and tolerable numbness. Different parts of his body lost feeling or faded in and out of recognition. At one point he thought he was moving his arm, could have sworn he was bringing it up in front of him, but when he glanced down it remained clenched at his side. He seemed to sway in his head but had not faltered an inch. Balor entered his field of vision. He had taken off his jacket and boots. The skin on his back was an unnatural bleach white. How do you feel? he asked. Freezing, Jonathan stammered. Balor raised his arms to the falling rain. Feels incredible to me. You will be able to tolerate the most uncomfortable conditions by the time our training is ended. This, this is a luxury, brother. You will know pain. You will know suffering. You will know the fine line between life and death and even cross it. Adi is the most important foundation to life itself. 
It is recognizing that all life ends, and that includes your own. Knowing that, intimately, changes the dance when you're thrown into the fray. He looked over at Jonathan. I could have you stand out here until you died, Jonathan, but that wouldn't be tonight or tomorrow. Believe it or not, you could stand there for at least three more days before you'd begin to lose control of your functions. Feel the cool. Let it wash over you and inspire you. Breathe deeply. The sheer significance of his words made the freezing rain a little more tolerable. Jonathan pulled the air into his lungs and felt the icy chill upon his skin. The resistance within him fell away and his shoulders relaxed. He was still cold, but he could manage. If you died tonight, Jonathan, said Valor, let it be knowing the full extent of all of your senses. To do otherwise would be to deny everything that you are. Being a knight is only being willing to die where others cower in fear. It is the unspoken creed of our kind, of all warriors throughout history. Come, let's spar. Inside? Jonathan asked. Of course not. Beller grinned and tossed Jonathan his practice sword. Let's pick up where we left off yesterday. The two clashed as the downpour continued. As they trained and Balor imbued Jonathan with his skills, he became quicker, more stable, more reactive. The rain continued into the next day and on into the night. Jonathan positioned his ahi on the beach where he had met Aya this time. He stared into the clouds as the lightning blasted through the belly of the storm above the ocean waves. Jonathan had learned how to meditate on Earth. He hadn't been very good at it there, but he also knew that he hadn't dedicated enough time to understand exactly what was happening to him. Juan had reminded him and Shirasa to meditate, but he hadn't yet taken the time to try. Applying what he had learned in his first five sessions with Juan, Jonathan focused on the air moving in and out of his nose. The previous storm brought a cold front that had made the air cooler than it had been the first night he practiced. He felt it course over his flesh as he focused on the air moving through him. After about five minutes, he began body scanning. Beginning from his nose, he worked his way down to his upper lip, felt a droplet of rain on his forehead, and began to experience the water moving over his skin. More rain began to fall until it was drizzling, and he was standing in ahi attention as the universe of sensation cascaded over his upper body. The relaxation drenched down his shoulders and frigid cool crept up his spine to the base of his neck, inspiring waves of numbing goosebumps across his arms and back. Jonathan lifted his arms into the air. The waves in the ocean danced before him, as if answering to his invitation. He could sense the beings within the area around him, the many sizes of fish swimming in the water, the birds nesting in the trees on the bank of the beach, the millions of insects skittering between the small places of the world. He opened his eyes. Balor clapped a hand on Jonathan's back. They sparred on the beach. When you go for the kill with any blade, when you know you've got your enemy and your next strike will seal his fate, you must drive the blade into one of the killing zones we talked about with offhand reinforcing your mane. You have to provide enough force to break bone. Some men will stand when by all rights they shouldn't have enough life left to swing a weapon. Everything Jonathan learned he committed to memory and applied his form and execution of technique until even Balor, with his rage blood to drive his speed and force, could not keep up with him. Jonathan's hair and facial hair grew long and unkempt. He began to grow proficient with a vast array of weapons, from throwing knives and bows to dual-wielding close-quarter combat to bare-knuckle boxing. Beller taught him to hunt, to track and seek prey without being witnessed in the wilderness, to see the life existing within the stillness of nature. Jonathan applied his meditation and Adi to all of this. 6. 
Close to two Earth months after Jonathan had sustained his injury and Joel's hawk was stolen, Jonathan and Balor were sparring in the basement when they heard Aya scream. Balor grabbed a steel short sword from the wall and charged up the steps. Joel wrenched his bedroom door open as Jonathan followed Balor through the corridor. Balor opened Aya's bedroom door and saw the broken window and bedsheets strewn across the floor. Jonathan was out the front door first and running across the lawn, but Balor surpassed him. The two jogged into the stark, snow-coated brush where they could just make out the flickering torchlight on the leaves. Balor bounded ahead. Jonathan almost didn't stop in time, but he watched Balor run right into a small clearing. Six men were there and they had Aya. Balor didn't stop. He ran into the middle and chopped off one's head in a swift succession of strikes. Blood laced the short sword's blade as he defended himself against the swarm of bandits. Jonathan threw two knives, one right after the other. Each met their mark and blinded two of the men. Jonathan emerged from the brush with the wooden practice sword in hand. One of the bandits they could still see split from the fray. Jonathan clocked him so hard on the leg that he visibly saw the bone in his kneecap crook unnaturally out of its socket. He grabbed the sword from the bandit's hand and rammed it through the man's throat. Blood spewed from his mouth across Jonathan's forearm as Jonathan threw the thief's body off the blade. Balor had dropped another bandit while the blinded men fled in opposite directions. The man with Aya had run off before Jonathan or Balor could finish the others. Balor dropped the short sword and went after him. Jonathan rushed in pursuit. By the time Jonathan caught up to Balor, Balor had ripped apart Aya's assailant and was sitting beneath a tree with Aya trembling in his bloodied arms. Gather their weapons and equipment, Balor said lowly to Jonathan. We'll use what we can and sell what we can't. Okay, Jonathan said, wondering how Balor could sit still when he had just brutally murdered four men. Jonathan did as his instructor had asked and gathered the weapons of the fallen. He recovered both knives and Balor's short sword. The bandits he found had three quivers and three bows, six short swords and two long swords. They had nothing else. We'll need to keep a lookout from now on. Those weren't the first and they won't be the last, Balor said with Aya sitting silently in his arms as they made their way back to the house. Jonathan caught a good look at her face and saw that she wasn't sad. She was furious. 7. The next few days were rainy. It didn't stop raining but for a few hours at a time. Aya told Jonathan as she drank her tea one evening before Balor woke that this was the midwinter rainy season, Fortreten, the Alondron version of Earth's winter. The season lasted up to six months in some kingdoms on Alondronon. Since the attack that nearly stole his sister's life, Balor had been training their focus on the exchange between heavily offense and moving to defense in a crowd. It is possible, said Balor as they stood in the torchlight in the basement, to be everywhere and nowhere at once. For every swing of the blade, there is an opening. For every opposing force, there is a blade. You must learn how to remain in the openings and make every effort to put a blade in each opposing force. For this practice, we'll need Aya and Joel. Both are ready and waiting upstairs as we speak. Sure enough, Aya and Joel stood on the lawn with the longswords they had taken from the corpses earlier. It was drizzling, but no one minded. Balor placed a practice sword in Jonathan's grasp and took up a short sword in each hand. Wait a minute, everyone gets a real weapon except me? Jonathan asked. You're faster and stronger than everyone here combined, Jonathan, Beller said, slicking back his ratty black hair. You've also been formally trained. The only thing separating you from a knight is a few lessons in your lack of enlistment. Any city cohort would take you for the reserves in a heartbeat. Use you for clearing out bandit alcoves in the mountains and villas if they were smart. 
That's hard work, but you'd be well paid. What happens if someone accidentally hits me? You've seen our sparring matches, said Maller. I can't even keep up with you anymore. These two couldn't land a hit on you if they tried their hardest. You know, we're standing right here, said Joel. Maybe if some of us had been trained, we'd be able to fight back. A knight can't be trained, Maller scoffed. I could see it in this one a mile away. He smiled pridefully at his pupil, even though he'd said the same thing of Jonathan in the beginning. There was no doubt in Jonathan's mind that Joel could keep up if he'd been taught the same method. All right, you two are going to attack Jonathan with everything you've got without hitting one another in the process, Beller instructed Aya and Joel before turning to Jonathan. You're going to defend yourself and try not to beat the living hell out of the civilians. A painless disarm would be key here. Aya and Joel advanced on him. Jonathan popped the muscles around his neck and shoulders with a quick shrug before raising his wooden practice sword. Joel swung first, I immediately after. Jonathan caught Joel's blade with the edge of the practice sword and turned around. He lightly elbowed Joel in the stomach and then caught Aya's strike. He had gotten so used to fighting with extreme speed and strength against Balor that this was a cakewalk. Both Aya and Joel looked to Balor for instruction. Balor approached with the swords at the ready. Hit him at all costs. Forget form. Just land a hit on Jonathan and you win. Balor charged forward and swung both short swords at Jonathan. Jonathan tossed the practice sword to his offhand as he ducked the blades. He shoved Balor back with his palms and then blocked Aya's downward strike with the sword in his offhand and grabbed Joel's wrist with his main hand. He took the long sword from Joel's grasp before backing up. He raised both swords victoriously. Balor, Aya, and Joel recovered but took no action. This isn't fair, Joel laughed. I'm not doing anything you can't do, Jonathan said. It's not the practice, Jonathan. Balor said. Something else is happening here. Practice is just harnessing whatever it is. Most people can't move that fast. I don't understand what I'm doing that's so incredible, Jonathan said. You just react on a level that none of us can comprehend, Aya said. Let's try it again, Joel said. Jonathan tossed him his sword. A few different steps, but the outcome was the same. I'm done, Joel shoved the longsword in the ground and walked back to the house. Aya said something, but Jonathan couldn't hear as the rain grew heavier. She went back inside and closed the door behind her. Balor beckoned him back to the house. He followed him inside. Aya and Joel changed in their rooms and emerged a few minutes later. Jonathan sat on the floor and embraced the cool air while Balor took off his boots and shook out his pants. We need food, Aya sighed. We've got enough jerky for tonight, but until this rain lets up, we can't go hunt or get supplies from Shirasa. If it doesn't rain tomorrow, we'll go then, Joel said to her. Jonathan could tell that he liked her and she him. They had been making eyes at one another for several weeks now. Part of it was that Joel had helped put together the entire garden for her, a job Jonathan may have had if he hadn't been preoccupied with training. Jonathan knew the other part. It was the part he had shared with Elizabeth after they spent two months side by side putting together the Bridge of the Enigma. At a certain point, after so much time next to her, to not be around her felt foreign, like time not well spent. Remembering Elizabeth was like recalling a disheveled memory from another life. Everything had been so insane over the last few months, he'd hardly had time to mourn her passing. So many had died, he had only seen a handful of survivors. That he hadn't gone in search of them already made him feel cold, like he didn't care, and he realized that he didn't. The man he was, the doctor that had invented the Enigma, had died and in his place stood someone different, someone powerful. 8. 
As soon as the rain let up the next morning, Jonathan and Aya hurried down the road for Shirasa. Joel was to tend to the garden for the morning while Balor slept. The overcast, darkening sky made no promises to keep the rain away, and the last thing they wanted to do was deal with flooding on the way back, so they jogged at a steady pace. Balor had made Jonathan carry weights while he ran through the forest during their training. Running had become as easy as breathing. He hadn't felt so agile and capable since his first year in the space program. Once Aya lost her breath, they slowed to a walk. Jonathan felt a few sprinkles, but the rain kept its distance. The training is going well, obviously, Aya said. I've learned a lot from Balor, more than I ever would have believed possible. Balor is a good man, said Aya. If I could come up with some extra money, I might be able to find a remedy for his sickness. I'll help you when I can. Now that I've been trained, we can figure out ways to make money. Maybe get out of these woods. It's not safe for us here. You mean it's not safe for me here? I aside. I think you should go back to Shirasa. Sell what we looted and find a place where there's enough enforcement that no one will try to hurt you. Work a job until you can save up and cure your brother. Joel and I can take care of Balor, but worrying about you is what's keeping Balor on edge during his every waking hour. You think I can't take care of myself? I asked. That's not what I said. Jonathan shook his head. When those thieves kidnapped you, they went in straight through your window. They knew you were in there, meaning they've been watching us. They know what we've been doing, and they know who we are. It's not a matter of being able to take care of yourself in the wild. It's the anonymity of this enemy and their whereabouts that worries me. I know you're right, but leaving Balor with his sickness, that I may never see him again, I don't know if I can do that. Balor is the only one that's always taking care of me. You'll be fine. Jonathan glanced at Aya, his eyes flicking between her hair and her face. I've noticed you and Joel. Aya's face went a shade pinker. She tucked a strand of brown hair behind her ear. Joel is a pilot from my world of Earth. He's a good, reliable man. If you stay in the city, I'd advise you to move in with him. He'll be able to take care of you the way a man should. I would never ask him or any other man to do that. In our culture, it would be a good man's pleasure to be there for you. If the position is open and you both want it, it's yours for the taking. The language is our biggest complication. He gets frustrated easily when I try to teach him phrases or correct him. He'll learn. He's smart. Jonathan shook his head. If you knew the standards we were required to meet in order to even be here. We'll see. The last thing I want is to make someone take care of me. It didn't take long for them to get to Shirasa. At their backs, the sky was a deep blue, foreboding an uncomfortable trip back home. Snow began to fall in a steady powder. There was no line of merchants today. As they approached the gate, the guards waved them through without question. Aya traded the equipment they had taken from the thieves for food and supplies, and then they started back through the marketplace. Boom! The sound thundered through the market. Jonathan could not mistake the tone. It was the sound of a shotgun. The citizens of the marketplace yelled and ran in different directions, not understanding what was happening or how to react when under the threat of gunfire. Boom! Everybody get back! A man with an overly large chin yelled from a storefront as he reloaded his weapon. Jonathan knew he was from the Enigma, but he didn't recognize him. A bag of knives and other equipment dangled from the hand holding the handle of the shotgun. On the market wall behind him, in surreal clarity, was the blood and brains of one of the merchants. Guards flooded from one of the guard towers nearby into the streets. The man brandished the shotgun at them as if it would ward them away, but they just kept on coming. Boom! Boom! 
He fired two rounds, blowing two of the guards to tatters before they overwhelmed the man and brutally stabbed him to death in the gutter. The guards dispersed, all of their swords bathed in blood. One of the guards carried the shotgun and the satchel of equipment with them as they returned to the guard tower. Everyone realized that the commotion was over and went back to business. As Jonathan and I left the city, the snow turned to freezing rain. 9. Balor woke to the sound of rain dripping off the roof and knocking against the wood outside. He'd thrown a deerskin over the window, but he could still hear the noise through his sleep. It sounded peculiar this time, though. When he opened his eyes, he realized that it was Joel, pounding on the door. Balor! Joel yelled. They're here! Come quick! You've gotta wake up! He was slamming as hard as he could. Balor growled and grabbed his short sword from behind the chair in the corner. He pulled the door back and marched past Joel to the living room. He stared out the window and grimaced at the minimal light of the afternoon. Evening was falling. Three thieves with bows over their shoulders made their way toward the house. Balor disappeared from the window and waited by the door. The doorknob turned beside him. Balor grabbed the doorknob and pushed to keep them from entering. They pushed back. Balor yanked the door open, allowing one of the thieves to fall inward. He swung the sword down and sliced through the thief's skull. The other two retreated. Balor followed after them. He made it three steps off the porch when he witnessed six arrows fly silently from the forest line and thrum into his chest, halting him in mid-motion. The cold pain flooded through him on the inside. It was a weird feeling. He gasped in disbelief that this was happening. It seemed surreal, dreamlike. More arrows soundlessly drilled into his stomach and chest, one nailing him in the thigh. There must have been ten archers firing from the tree line around the cabin. The next arrow dropped him to one knee. Another pushed him in the shoulder. Balor resisted the pain, feeling his warrior spirit fade into the oncoming numbness. Dozens of bandits filed past him, entering the house and taking everything of value. When Balor lifted his head, Lanny Redbetter, the man who had raped his sister before his eyes, stood on the lawn ahead with one hand resting on the hilt of the blade at his hip. His head was thinly shaven. He had a thick brown goatee and mustache. Awful shame, Balor, Redbetter drawled. I thought we could share your sister, but apparently I was playing too easy. I'm going to keep her and have her until there's nothing left. After that, she'll be food for the dogs when I hand her off to my men. Balor wanted to say something, but didn't have the energy. He was still trying to stomach the fact that he was going to die soon, and there wasn't anything he could do about it. We found this one hiding under the bed. One of Redbetter's men pushed Joel to the ground next to Balor. He looked over and saw Balor filled with arrows, but still barely conscious. Blood and drool ran down Balor's cheek and mixed with the rainwater dripping down his face. Tie him up and take him. He might know how to figure out that weird machine we found. Redbetter ordered and returned his attention to Balor. Are you still alive? He drew his sword, and in one sweep, Balor's world dissolved into a sea of relief. 10. Jonathan and Aya walked from the road toward the cabin that stood amidst the trees beneath the dark blue afternoon sky. Aya saw the door open, and then she saw the body sprawled on the ground in front of the house. She ran forward with Jonathan following, watching the trees. Balor! she shrieked. Aya collapsed on the ground beside the decapitated body of Balor. The head was nowhere to be found. Aya clutched her brother's lifeless form, tears streaming from her face as she cried. Jonathan searched the house. Everything of value was gone. Their weapons, their clothes, even the practice swords. Jonathan couldn't find Joel anywhere. 
He emerged from the house and looked from the blood to Balor's body. A fury that he had never felt before boiled across his mind. His hands shook as he stared at the corpse of his teacher. He couldn't believe how quickly it had happened. They'd only been gone a few hours. Turning to the trees, Jonathan felt rage course through his veins. He had to do this. He had to avenge Balor and end the lives of those who had the desire to bring harm to him and Aya. He had to end this fight once and for all. Jonathan walked into the woods. He saw the trails of where the culprits had run. There were dozens of them, and they made no effort to hide their tracks. Without waiting, Jonathan broke into a heavy run. The rain pelted the trees and poured through the cracks in the canopy of tree leaves. He bounded over the logs and skidded through the brush in pursuit of the assailants that would lead him straight to wherever the rest of the bastards were holed up. He lost track of where he had come from or which way led back to the cabin, but he didn't care. Making the ones who killed Balor suffer was the only thing that mattered. Jonathan slowed. He could sense the presence of another person in the grove between the trees ahead. It was a sentry. Someone sat there to make sure the rest of the group wasn't followed. They didn't see him, and that was good. Jonathan hid next to a nearby tree. How did he know someone was there? It was a recurring situation he had gone through several times. While he and Balor were hunting, he frequently figured out where his prey hid without understanding how. Something he sensed. Something he could see. An aura that emitted from a thinking mind. He could sense a body trying to keep itself alive with the perpetual life-sustaining motion. A heartbeat thrummed, moving blood to vessels that coursed through fingers clutching a bow. The owner of that bow was in a tree near the edge of the grove. His heart rate was steady and low, meaning he was barely conscious. Jonathan could sense all of this when he closed his eyes and meditated. He moved his attention to his ears, and he knew the exact position of the sentry. Opening his eyes, Jonathan darted from behind the tree. Before the man in the tree could react to the sound of Jonathan's hurried footsteps, Jonathan yanked him down and slammed him to the ground. The man kicked and punched at Jonathan as he squeezed the life from his body. Jonathan's rage filled his fingers, tightening them until the throat of the man was a thin, mangled tube of bones. He equipped himself with the man's short sword and laced his quiver of sixteen arrows over his back. Six more sentries were in the trees preceding what appeared to be the steeple of an old dilapidated cathedral. Using the bow and arrow, Jonathan dropped them all before the first could hit the ground, and then pinned the two guarding the cathedral doors through the throats to the wall behind them. The two bell tower watchmen died on top of one another. Jonathan crept to the trees and took a longsword in his offhand and one in his main hand from the corpses, leaving the bow. He wouldn't need it anymore now that the outdoor patrol was down. The moment one of the men inside checked outside, they'd know something was wrong. A droplet of blood fell on the back of Jonathan's hand. He observed it and looked up. Balor's head was dangling from the archway of the threshold high above, mouth hanging open disgustingly as the eyes had rolled into the back of his head. A fresh wave of anger flooded Jonathan's innards. Jonathan walked up to the cathedral door and kicked it open. He rushed inside, already understanding the layout from the bodies he could sense on the upper and lower stories. What happened inside was a bloodbath. Afterward, he would have no recollection of the specifics that occurred in that cathedral. An impossible number of men fell to Jonathan's blades, their blood staining his skin as he hacked, stabbed, and broke through them. The violence, the sheer hatred that had enveloped him was startling. From inside a cell, Joel watched the demonic shadow brutally execute every man alive on the bottom floor of the cathedral in seconds. 
blood oozed between the cracks in the cathedral's cobblestone floor and pooled under the cell door. The roof over the worship hall had collapsed long ago. Lanny Redbetter and a group of ten were celebrating in the room on the second level that was Lanny's quarters. Jonathan kicked the doors, but they were locked. He kicked again without any success. The third time, the chuck barring the doors burst in two as the doors flew open. Jonathan put his sword through a man's face with one blade, sliced another's throat with the other, and violently disarmed another two with ease. Lanny watched in horror as his men went down and had no chance of fighting back. He darted past Jonathan as the last three of his men were executed. Jonathan stood at the head of the stairs with the blood of Lanny's company covering his arms and face, a sword in each hand. Lanny slipped and fell down the steps as Jonathan kicked off the guardrail and dropped in front of the doorway leading out. Lanny scrambled across the floor to his feet and ran through the threshold into the outer courtyard. He made for the open hawk that had been Joel's, got inside, and pulled the hatch closed over him. They had evidently figured out how the lock and seal worked because, try as he might, Jonathan couldn't get the hatch to budge. Furious, Jonathan dropped his swords and punched the glass of the hawk. It did nothing. It was designed to withstand the vacuum and debris of space. Lanny laughed soundlessly from within. Hating the man in his face, knowing that he was the one who had killed Balor, Jonathan climbed onto the hood of the hawk. He brought his fist down as hard as he could and it did no more than it had done earlier. If not for the anger radiating from him, he'd have felt pain, but he was beyond that now. Behind the glass, Lanny laughed at Jonathan's lack of success. Jonathan hooked his blood-stained fingers in the edge of the door. He took a deep breath, filling his lungs with air. Jonathan's fingers, hard as rock, gripped the corners of the door and he pulled. He pulled as hard as he could, the muscles in his flesh tearing through his forearms and biceps, spritzing through his spine as his thighs torqued and heaved. He remembered bending the iron bars on the ship after he'd been effectively killed in Chryseis. The joints in his elbows, pelvis, and knees popped to the point of agony. The door hissed as the vacuum pressure snapped. The hydraulic gears keeping the hatch closed broke through their positioning and sprang throughout the inside of the door as Jonathan broke the hood off the hawk and tossed it aside. Horror filled the face of the man beneath him. Jonathan hauled Lanny Redbetter out of the ship and slammed him against a nearby rock. Lanny protested, but Jonathan was beyond the capacity to hear. His fist connected with Redbetter's face so many times that his skull was unrecognizable beneath the gruel of blood and bone by the end. Jonathan? Joel asked. Jonathan heard his name and became conscious for the first time since he took out the patrol outside the cathedral. His gnarled fingers shook with the still wet blood of his enemy as he caped at his hands, understood what he had done, and knew that he had lost control. He had been in nothing but a red haze that was not unlike sleep, except he felt an overwhelming sense of exhaustion afterward. He slowly turned around and collapsed to his knees. His muscles unclenched and loosened, deadened by the energy force that his body was not made to withstand. Joel hurried to his side and helped him to his feet. What the hell happened? I... I have no idea, Jonathan groaned. He watched Joel speak, explaining that he had gotten a key off one of the thieves lying against the prison bars. He heard him ask questions and expect answers, but the sound fused in a solid beam of ringing. Jonathan became lightheaded and dizzy. Do you know how to get back? Joel asked. No. Jonathan stumbled forward and started walking to the gate to the field beyond the courtyard. It had stopped raining during his rampage, but thunder from the clouds to the east conveyed that it wouldn't stay placid for long. Wind billowed through them, making the trees around the cathedral dance. 
Jonathan could tell something was wrong with Joel. After what Joel had witnessed, he was scared to death of Jonathan. Jonathan took a moment to stare at the hawk sitting in the middle of the courtyard. He saw its demolished windshield, the indentions where the metal had been molded to the shape of the fingers of each of his hands. It was not physically possible for a human being to tear the hood off of one of those vehicles. He remembered the old Superman cartoons from his years of watching the archives, how Superman would effortlessly rip the hoods off of cars or one of Lex Luthor's giant robots. It was like that, except he had little memory of the event. How many did I kill? Jonathan asked Joel as the wind from the coming round of storms nearly knocked them down. Dozens, at least. It happened so fast. You were roaring. You tore through those people. You, Jonathan. Joel's green eyes met Jonathan's. You were so angry. I saw Balor get killed, watched that man you had trapped in the ship execute him, but it didn't make me angry. It just made me scared. What you did... I don't know. I'm not sure what happened to me. I don't know how I got here. It's about to come down, said Joel, surveying the sky. We should sort through the massacre and gather the equipment to sell. Maybe spend the night in one of the back rooms of the church. At least wait until the storm blows over. Even if I knew where the cabin was from here, we should still wait until tomorrow. I can't stay here, Jonathan said. Where will you go, Jonathan? If you just wander into the wilderness, you'll be eaten by a pack of dogs. That's if you don't die of pneumonia or get struck by lightning or caught in hail. Jonathan started walking. He ignored Joel's arguments until they faded into the distance behind him. Jonathan walked until the rain washed the blood from his hair, face, neck, shoulders, and body. His pants went from crimson to brown again as he walked through a downpour so heavy that he couldn't even see. It pelted his head and shoulders like bullets, but he didn't care. It fueled him, stimulated him, experiencing the cold. The punishment seemed somehow deserved, although it would never bring back the people he had murdered. Other than Redbetter, how could he not remember any of the faces of the others? How could they be mysteriously hooded figures that were disposable, when in actuality each person had a name, a face, and a will to survive? Jonathan had taken that will into his own hands and crushed the life out of those people. None of them ever had a chance. Who has the right to take power into their hands and decide the fate of others? Of who should live or die? And that question extended all the way to Earth as well. History seemed to be nothing more than one group deciding the fate of another. Such was the nature of war. Even once the war between the nations was over on Earth, man still had to face the endless war with nature as it threatened to decide the fate of Earth simply by being impermanent. Jonathan found himself running through the wilderness, fighting the guilt and pain that would come from acknowledging the atrocious acts he had committed. He had murdered sons. He had no idea how many there were, but running as fast as he could through the forest helped them not think about it. If he stopped to think, he'd land on the wrong footing and fall. He ran so fast that the trees became a blur. Forest turned to field and field returned to forest just as quickly. He ran for seemingly hours. A huge mountain loomed in the distance against the black backdrop of the storm clouds. Jonathan made it his goal to reach the top. He blew through the field and hit the incline in minutes. He hiked until there were too many rocks, so he jumped, throwing himself from stone to stone until he found a small snow-covered trail. Snow billowed over the mountainside in great fluffy white globes. Lightning speared through the clouds and static arcs overhead as he reached a landing that marked the highest point. Jonathan lowered his gaze and stared at the city of Shirasa on the edge of the horizon. 
A distant flicker of lightning illuminated the buildings and city streets within the circular walls that housed them. He could get back to the cabin from here. He made his way down the mountain and hurried to Aya's cabin. When he finally arrived, Jonathan stood in front of the cabin where the dim light of a candle flickered from within. The rain had turned into a light drizzle as a thick fog began to float through the trees. A fresh mound of dirt on the hill against the backwoods told him that Aya had spent the evening burying her brother. Jonathan approached the front door to the cabin. The door opened and Aya, with a wolfskin blanket wrapped about her, emerged to the porch with a candle in hand. Jonathan? It's me, he said, but his voice was so scratchy that nothing came out. He cleared his throat and repeated himself as she approached. What happened? Where's Joel? I asked. Is he... No, he's alive, but I lost him. He lost me. What are you talking about? You're soaking wet. Come inside and get warm. I'll start the fire again. Jonathan grabbed Aya's sleeve before she could enter. It's done. He met her eyes. I killed Lanny Redbetter with my own two hands. You'll never have to worry about him again. Balor can rest. You're certain? Aya narrowed her dark eyes on Jonathan's face. Yes. He stepped up the steps and stood before her as she watched him. There's no one left in this forest to hurt you, Aya. They stared at one another for a long time before she clutched his face and kissed him. Had he not sensed her longing, her loneliness and hunger, then he might have stopped himself. But he wanted her, and she him. Later, as Jonathan watched her closed eyes, he slowly drifted to sleep. 11. Jonathan heard Aya get up and go make her morning tea. He had started to drift, felt the onset of dreams sinking into his brain. Crash! Glass shattered in the kitchen. Aya screamed. Jonathan jumped out of bed, pulled on his pants, and ran into the kitchen. Smash! A huge fist filled his vision and he felt his feet go out from under him. He slammed into the ground on his back. Before he could gather his bearings, someone put his arms into a tight hold. Jonathan kicked, unable to get a good enough grip to pull himself out of the situation. He saw Aya being held by someone. The light of the sun through the window shrouded his face in silhouette, but the person moved forward. Brudo held Aya as she struggled to get free. A horrible yellow grin filled his face as he slapped her on the back of the head and knocked her out. He looked to Jonathan and squinted in remembrance. What a surprise. I seem to remember putting a spear through you right there. He pointed at the scar on Jonathan's stomach. You look like you've been training. I suppose it makes sense. You did kill one of General Hollander's moles in the Thieves' Clan. What exactly happened out there in that hideout of theirs, Jonathan? That is your name, isn't it? I'm going to kill you by the end of this day. Jonathan glared at Brudo. He tried to get free, but couldn't. His captor held him in a perfect hold. Tough words from a man who couldn't even swing a sword last time we met. It couldn't have been you who killed all those men in the cathedral, and it certainly wasn't your wormy accomplice either. Where's Joel? Jonathan asked through gritted teeth. He struggled again to get free, but the person holding him was too strong. Already on his way to Shirasa. He's going to be introduced to the prison Virago just like you were, and I imagine he'll do just as well. You, since you've got such a big mouth and the Shirasa guard doesn't take kindly to the blind execution of one of its informants, you'll probably be facing public execution in the ring for the citizens of Shirasa's enjoyment. A simple pre-round slaying before the real fun begins. Your informant was a rapist and a murderer, Jonathan said. Brudo and the gladiator holding him laughed. 
don't think he knows what a casual evening for us is, do you, Bruto? his friend asked. No, I don't think he does, Polari, Bruto chuckled. All right, here's what's going to happen, Jonathan. There are two carriages outside. You're going to go in one with me and Polari here. This one's going to take the other carriage, he pointed to Aya. She's going to go far, far away. You're going to go in the carriage of your own accord and be completely obedient because if you don't, then Polari is going to tell the people holding your girlfriend to do very bad things to her. They're going to do very bad things to her if I don't arrive by nightfall tonight. It's in your best interest to do everything we say. Does that sound like something you can do for us, Jonathan? Only if you promise you won't hurt her, Jonathan said. Not a hair on her head will be touched, so long as you do everything we ask, Bruto said, fighting back a smile. Fine, Jonathan said. Polari released him and he got to his feet. Jonathan turned and raised his fist. Bruto used his foot to push Jonathan's left leg out from under him and grabbed his fist faster than he could blink. That's your warning. Get to the carriage. He shoved Jonathan across the hardwood floor to his hands and knees in front of the open front door. Oddly enough, the sky was clear and the morning birds were chirping in the trees. It's hard to believe the world can go on during moments of horror, but here he was. Jonathan got to his feet and stumbled down the steps toward the two carriages at the end of the road. Both of them had bars over the windows. The drivers wore old patchwork clothing. Both of the horses were so dark brown they were almost black. Their bulging black eyes watched Jonathan approach, impartial to his plight. He saw dozens of Cherise and guards on horseback covering the different dirt roads leading east and west. He climbed into the back of the carriage. The interior was wooden, stripped of all padding to ensure the rider was as uncomfortable as humanly possible. He sat with his back to the driver. Through the bars, Jonathan watched Polari push Aya into the other carriage. Her sad complexion met Jonathan's for a moment before she was shut away from him. Bruto and Polari climbed into his carriage and sat opposite to Jonathan. They looked like overgrown monsters in the tiny cabin with their bulging legs touching, their gnarled knees meeting Jonathan's. Bruto clapped the side of the cabin three times and pulled the passenger door closed. The rider whipped the horse into motion and the cart jostled forward. The other carriage gigged ahead and disappeared down the path that led north. You'll never see her again, Polari said. He ran a hand through his long, strawberry blonde hair and looked out the window. Oh, look, bandits! Their driver became a pincushion as dozens of arrows filled him and he toppled over the side of the carriage. The cart continued until a red-hooded figure on horseback galloped past them and headed off the carriage's horse. Bruto and Polari stared straight ahead as Jonathan watched the cloaked bandits emerge from the woods surrounding them. They weren't a mile away from Jonathan's cabin. The idea that this many bandits were hiding just right here made Jonathan wonder if they had known he, Joel, Aya, and Balor were living in the cabin all along. Jonathan knew that these bandits were probably affiliated with the other band of thieves he had slaughtered. They were out for revenge, but he couldn't help feeling excited about the coming battle. Even if they murdered him, at least he'd get to see them kill Bruto and Polari as well. You ready? Bruto asked, preparing himself by the passenger door. I think I can handle this. Polari mimicked Bruto's form, one shoulder against the door with a hand in the door handle. At once, the two busted their passenger doors off their hinges and rushed the thieves. Arrows whizzed through the air from every direction conceivable. For thirty seconds, there was absolute chaos. Some arrows even passed through the cabin, inches from where Jonathan was seated. Bruto and Polari used the doors to shield themselves from the arrows while beating the thieves down one by one. They obliterated each of them. 
Brutto caught a man's knife and threw it into the trees. A figure fell from the branches and disappeared behind the overgrowth. Polari used a dead bandit as a shield before using the corpse to mangle another thief. They moved like he did. Brutto heaved his door like a frisbee and knocked the bandit in red off the horse. The brown and white paint horse galloped by the open door of the cart. Jonathan peered out of the carriage to see the whole of the bandit ambushed dead at the feet of Brutto and Polari. After they gathered the equipment of the fallen, Polari climbed into the back of the carriage and sat before Jonathan. Brutto climbed into the driver's seat and gave the horses into motion. When Jonathan pulled back into his seat, Polari was snickering. He looked out the window. You're never going to see your girlfriend again, you know? What does it matter? How would you know if we killed her or not? Jonathan stared at the wall beyond Polari's head, making certain that he didn't bite. It was a ruse, a trick to see if he would retaliate, but Jonathan said and did nothing. Polari continued smirking. Jonathan knew that he would kill Polari one day, and that he would kill Bruto possibly on the same day. It could be this day. But it wouldn't be here and it wouldn't be now. Why do you care about that useless peasant woman? He asked. Jonathan looked at him. Why care about anything? Why live today or live tomorrow? You're just going to die in the end anyway. The girl made you happy. Now I see. Polari laughed like an idiot. But we're going to show you that what you do between now and when you die, Jonathan, means everything. What did you do with my friend, the wormy one you were talking about before? Jonathan asked. Already in Shirasa, being broken. You'll stand trial for the murder of Zeeg of House Worth, he paused. When Polari realized that Jonathan had no grasp on what it meant, he went on. Worth, a duke of Shirasa, undercover as the thief you knew as Lanny Redbetter. You killed a duke's son. Duke Worth's son was a rapist and he murdered my teacher, a knight named Balor. Balor was a discharged knight of the Sherezan Guard. He was supposed to be disposed of after he was infected with Sukomia. And even if he was still an active duty knight, the life of a nobleman's son is worth far more than that of a simple knight. But this Vitium Skellis phrase you use, you're the first one I've ever heard say that like it's a bad thing. Your culture doesn't recognize that rape is a crime? Tell me something. If vidium skellis, or rape, is such a common occurrence, why then are the women of your culture degraded and outraged by it? Are men just strength in numbers, or do you truly believe that what you do is without fault? I've never really thought about it, Polari said, and Jonathan believed him. Polari was playing a role. He had no conscious awareness that his actions had far-reaching consequences, or that he and everyone else had the power to change. To explain that they can change sounds like gibberish to one who is playing one of these roles. Polari would never come to realize this, and not because Jonathan planned to murder him at the first opportunity. Ignorance is prevalent to the culture. While Jonathan's ideas and views were of sound and enlightened nature, that kind of thinking didn't serve well in the need for basic survival. When one is forced only to survive, the way all members of the lower levels of the Alondron caste system are forced to live, basic instinct and automatic reactivity dominates. It's the only way of life they know because it feels right, and there's no one of physical, mental, or political strength to say or do otherwise. Jonathan vowed to change that so long as the gods kept him alive. He'd do it for Aya, in her name, even if he never saw her again. They traveled the rest of the way in silence. By mid-morning, they reached Rasa. There was no friendly greeting from the guards this time. They entered a heavily guarded threshold on the side of the city that led into the darkened depths of the Undercity. 
Torches lined a rectangular pathway that wound around the shape of the wall until the path descended into the heart of a thriving undermarket. There were significantly more people in this market than there were at the one on the surface, and there were dozens of layers honey coming down into the pit of the earth. At the heart of the city was a gargantuan stadium-sized arena where hundreds of thousands of people had congregated. There were more inhabitants on this planet than Jonathan had initially realized. Polari noticed him looking at the arena. That's where real heroes are born. You won't live that long. You're going to die in the slush pits. Petty murderers like you never get out of the slush pits. Jonathan ignored him. The fear of death only implies that one has something to lose. Jonathan had nothing left on this planet or anywhere. This was one small city on an incalculable number of cities on a planet this size. There weren't very many of his people left. If they survived, it wouldn't be because they did it on their own. The fantastic interstellar spacecraft that had been his invention left them broken and doomed on this planet, and everything he had done ever since had further condemned him and his kind for trying to survive. They would catch on eventually, the Alondrons, and once they did, they would slaughter humankind like anyone in control would at the first signs of an infestation. You're in luck, Polari said to Jonathan. The council is already in session. They'll be the ones to decide your punishment. Brudo pulled them into an underground stable and released the black horse into a corral. From there, Brudo and Polari hauled Jonathan into the underground streets of Shirasa. Giant bowls of fire lit the faces of tall buildings built into the walls all the way to the walls on the opposite side of the city. The streets were filled with people. Each expression contained the same dry, dirty look. Mammals living underground like insects in a hive. He didn't get to see much of the inner city. They pulled him into a vacant, tall corridor with mighty red banners hanging down from the crisscrossing ornamental archways. The few guards they passed in the corridor watched them suspiciously. They all recognized Brudo. If not for him, the three probably wouldn't have gotten this close to the council's inner chamber. At the end of the hall were two archways. They each seemed to go toward the same direction, but the three took the passage on the right. The path wound around until it fed a perfectly circular platform disc. In the center of the disc, a pair of locks had been built into the floor. As Brudo and Polari pushed him toward the center, Jonathan noticed that he was being watched by eleven people, eight men and three women. Some of them conversed with one another as Brudo positioned Jonathan's legs in the floor locks. Once Brudo had slammed the locks closed, the cool metal clamp stopped just above his knees. Polari and Brudo walked in different directions on the platform. They each took the end of a chain from two retractable chain feeds mounted on either side of the disc and each pulled the chain to one of Jonathan's arms. After lacing Jonathan's forearms with the chains, the mechanisms in the mount stretched Jonathan's arms wide. Everything was cold. The air, the metal, the chains, the spirits of the men who judged him. His fingers curled as he watched the patrons surrounding the disc. He thought of Aya how he'd been forced into this decision tactfully by Bruto and Polari on the say-so that she might be okay if he did everything right. The chains cut into Jonathan's flesh as he wrapped his hands about the chains and pulled. A creaking sound emerged from the mechanisms holding him. Jonathan took a deep breath and gave a little tug from both arms. The chain holding his right wrist gave way and the chain fell lax on the floor, his right hand clapping to his right hip. Just for kicks, Jonathan broke the other one and let his hands hang at his side as if this interruption in process was nothing more than a harmless accident. Everyone was looking at him now. Polari glared at Jonathan and stood in front of him as Bruto ran down the pathway leading out of the room. 
He returned carrying two armloads of chain, which he dumped next to the right mechanism. He quickly withdrew the old chain from it, digging his arm deep within the square box. Connecting the new chain, Bruto pulled and wrapped the new chain around Jonathan's wrist. He did the same thing with the left side and watched Jonathan as his arm stretched wide again. Don't make me pull it tight, Bruto warned. Jonathan inhaled for a good ten seconds and balled his fists. The chain gave a strained cry. This time, the left gave way first. A few members of the council gasped. Bruto whispered curses. Polari marched forward with the intention of putting his fist into Jonathan's face. Bruto grabbed Polari's shoulder and shook his head. Watch him. I'll get another set of chains, Jonathan heard him say. Polari crossed his beefy arms and looked down on Jonathan. Bruto returned and connected the new chains. He bound Jonathan's arms once more and stepped back. This time, Jonathan yanked his arm and the entire right mechanism mounted to the floor broke away. He tore the other one just as easily. Stone pieces covered the platform as dozens of guards rushed down the passageway toward Jonathan. He was still locked with his legs, so this would be interesting. The first that met him, Jonathan hit hard in the face with the back of his still-chained forearm, stopping him in his tracks. Jonathan punched him square in the chest, sending him flying. He threw the chains connected to his right hand across three of the oncoming soldiers, whipping chains across them as Bruto planted a fist across Jonathan's face. Blood swam from his lips to the floor in gobs. The guards surrounded Jonathan and held him up by his shoulders, placing their swords at the ready to execute him. This was it. His death was finally here to free him from this nightmare. Stop! One of the council members called and stood up. He wore glasses and had a crop of short, curly black hair, a round, clean-shaven face, and wore a blue and yellow robe. He was the face of the wealthy and powerful of the Alondron society. There's no need for violence. We just need stronger chains. Duke Riard Absil has spared your life, Polari stated. He's not going anywhere, said the Duke. Jonathan spit a hawk of blood onto the floor and wiped his face with the back of his sweaty, chained wrist. His eyes flicked between the members of the council beyond his view of the faceless guards in red Cherizan uniforms. A plump man in a black robe with a red sash over his chest stood up. He had a thick beard beneath bulldog cheeks and a black turban resting on his protruding brow. The man cleared his throat and looked to Jonathan. Jonathan, as you have been named, you are here before the council as we consider what to do with you after the brutal execution and murder of Zieg, the son of Duke Remenworth. Have you anything to say for your crime? I didn't know the man was the son of a duke, Jonathan said, but no one could hear him. Jonathan spat again and brought his voice to a call. I thought he was the chieftain of a cult of thieves that executed my teacher. I did not know this man was of importance to your society. The council members looked taken aback, confused. They murmured amongst themselves. It was his wording. They couldn't understand what he was saying. Send him to the Virago! A man in a brown tunic with a few strands of gray hair on his balding head said in a raspy tone. Execute him right here and now, a woman with long violet hair said. She had a fox-like face and was easily the most beautiful woman Jonathan had seen on a laundronon. Put him to work in the mines. I'll introduce him to the foreman of Mount Fountain's silver mine, Duke Seal said. Several of the other members murmured of execution, and others argued if they were going to execute him, then they may as well get a good show out of him and throw him into the arena. I vote we leave the decision to Remenworth, the man with the red sash spoke. Most everyone nodded in agreement. A scrawny man to the far right of the council's table considered Jonathan through staring, judging eyes. 
He had a narrow skull and a bushy mustache that reminded Jonathan of Redbetters before Jonathan reduced it to a fluid of protein and calcium. The rest of the council stared at him. Ramonworth watched Jonathan for a minute and then got to his feet. He made his way behind the council members' chairs and casually walked up the path to leave the room. Jonathan saw him enter from the archway that led to the disc. Everyone watched as Remenworth dropped to his knees and picked up the sword one of the guards had dropped. He waved Polari Bruto and the other guards away. Jonathan was a few inches taller than the man before him. Remen lifted the blade and raised it to Jonathan. His hand was shaking. His left cheek twitched as he breathed angrily. I own you. Remenworth dropped the sword and grabbed Jonathan by the back of the neck, wrenching him down so that he could speak into Jonathan's ear. I own you. What makes you think you're better than my son? What right did you have to take his life? What ominate damn right? Jonathan glared at him. I'd kill him again, a hundred million times over if I could, and then I'd kill you just for thinking his existence was worth a shit. Worth reflexively moved to backhand Jonathan, but Jonathan caught his wrist, spit into the man's face, and pushed him back. The guards advanced, but Rem and Worth held up a hand while wiping the spit away with the other. Death would mean that he couldn't pay back the debt he owes for killing my son. You want to fight? He leveled his gaze to Jonathan's. You want to murder and soak your hands in blood? Send him to the pits. Let him become a champion in my name, or die as the no one that he is. I will kill you and everyone in this room one day, Jonathan whispered to Remenworth. Remenworth turned toward the council. Save it for the pits. You'll need all the incentive you can get to survive. And if you do, maybe you'll redeem yourself in our eyes. Maybe you'll actually become something bigger and better than garbage. And one more thing. Remen turned around and placed his fist in Jonathan's stomach, doubling him over. Don't ever defy me and don't ever forget that I own you in your pathetic life. Drop him, Bruto yelled and thumbed over his shoulder. Worth stepped away as the leg clamps released from Jonathan's legs and the floor mechanically slid apart. Jonathan fell into a shaft and slid down a series of channels, tumbling over ledges and cliffs. By the time he reached the bottom, he felt tenderized. Two pairs of hands hauled him to his feet. Jonathan's arm was presented, and excruciating, searing pain filled Jonathan's head. He thrashed and kicked, but his captors held him down. They tossed a bucket of water onto the wound and hoisted him down another series of tubes and shafts. When Jonathan landed on his stomach on hard stone, he didn't think he could stand up. He lifted his head and looked around to see an underground valley with torch poles lighting the circumference around them. It looked just like the prison he had experienced in Crisius, except darker and there were more people. Gangs of men in loincloths and tarps marched across the valley. When one group mixed with another, only one kept moving in the direction they'd been going previously. The humid stink of gore filled the cavern. Jonathan pulled himself into a seated position, shakily staring at his arm. A large branded 626 was bubbled in his scalded flesh. He got to his feet and stared at the Valley of Horrors. Now that he had been trained to fight, Things would be different. There is always a schedule to keep, and I'm normally the kind of person who keeps to it strictly, but I found on more than one occasion as I'm producing these podcasts that bursts of creative energy will take me away from my set objective. 
As I voiced Jonathan Tabith's struggles in this episode, I have begun reconstructing the proper version of the novel that The Fall of the Enigma was supposed to precede. The original Prodigy Effect was my first novel. It was about a five-year-old girl named Susie Tabith, who was the daughter of the great inventor Jonathan Tabith. You heard nothing of Jonathan in that story, so The Fall was the prologue to what is becoming one of my most carefully constructed fantasy novels. That story is halfway complete, and it is a large reason why this episode was delayed. Alondranon is a very compelling and strange place to narrate from. Time doesn't work the same there. The setting is equally important to the story and the characters, if not far more important. Alondranon is a real place to me, and if we're going to Alondranon, why don't we hang out and get the most bang for our buck while we're there? I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Leave us a good review, subscribe, and be sure to recommend this podcast to others. The Last Necromancer is up on Audible, so go check that out. I'll be doing a fairly large amount of Dreadnought work soon, and I'll keep you guys updated. Have a great fall! The Apocalypse Theater Podcast was produced, directed, written, and voiced by Benjamin Allen. If you'd like to support our podcast, be sure to subscribe, leave a good review, like, or check out our donation page on the contacts page of our website. You can also purchase my books or audiobooks. Visit EK Publishing Media for more information. The Apocalypse Theater Podcast is an EK Publishing Media production 2021.